I don't know if any of you grew up collecting things. Uh, like a lot of kids, I grew up collecting baseball cards and uh, hockey cards. Uh, those were not as popular with most of my friends, you know, hockey cards as the baseball cards were. Uh, but I grew up doing that. I think a lot of people do. Um, I don't know how much you ever spent. Maybe even today you're still collecting things. I don't know how the most you ever spent while you were collecting. I think probably when I was in junior high, I spent like $40 on a boxed set of uh, Topps baseball cards, if you remember what, what those were. Well, in the news recently, there was a, a man by the name of Logan Paul. If you don't know who he is, that's okay. He's a YouTuber, an influencer, and slash now he's also a professional boxer. But Logan Paul made it into the news because he spent $3.5 million on a first edition unboxed set of Pokemon trading cards. You heard me right. He spent $3.5 million on an unboxed set of Pokemon trading cards. Well, as he started to boast about his purchase online and to show it in his social media accounts, people began to look at the box and begin to think, eh, that doesn't add up. Collectors began to question the validity of those cards that maybe they weren't first edition, maybe he had gotten some fakes. And so <clears throat> the rancor over uh, his purchase reached such a place that eventually he was forced to open up the box and to see what was inside. Now the moment he knew if, if it was Pokemon trading cards inside and he opened an unopened box, the value of his you know, purchase would drop. But also at the same point, he could have a bunch of fakes. And so he opened up the box, and sure enough, when he opened it up, he discovered that those weren't Pokemon cards. In fact, a number of them were just G.I. Joe trading cards. They were fakes. They weren't the real thing. Now, fortunately for Logan Paul, the person who had sold him the cards was a reputable uh, collector, and so he actually returned the $3.5 million, and he took the cards back. So I, I, I think the guy knew that he would not keep his business if he didn't, didn't do that. But think about that. Logan Paul, because he had that which was fake and not true, in the brief moment had the potential to lose $3.5 million. Because those cards were false, there was going to be a significant impact upon him financially. Fortunately, it worked out in his favor. But that idea of having true versus fault, counterfeit versus the real thing, is something that in our letter today, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul addresses. When we started the series in 1 Timothy last week, I said this book was written as chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, so that the church of God, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, would know ultimately how to function in the world. We're studying this letter of 1 Timothy because it's a letter written by Paul to Timothy in order to help the people of God, which is you and I know what it looks like to live as the church in the world in which we live. And today, one of the things that's going to come up in the letter is this idea of counterfeit versus true, false versus real. 
And so I want to invite you to start with me this morning by reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, open up there, and we're going to dive in this morning. I'm going to start by reading the first two verses and then pause for a second. It starts this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we talked a little bit about these verses last week. We know right off the bat that what we're reading is a letter. We know the author's Paul. We know the recipient's Timothy. We also know from later on in the letter that this was a letter written ultimately not just for Timothy, but it was supposed to be read by the entire church. And so he's writing this letter, but there's something I didn't get to comment on last week. Look at what he says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our what? Hope. Paul comes to the saints of God. He comes to you and I, and he makes a profound statement here, something that I want to always be true at Valley Center Community Church, that as the people of God, our hope is not in money, it's not in relationships, it's not in business. Our hope is none other than Jesus Christ alone. Amen? He is the one who redeems. He is the one who saves. He's the one who has set us free. So in this world, our hope, and that is our confident assurance that what God has promised will come to pass is Jesus Christ. And so I just, I love that, and I don't want us to lose sight of that because Timothy's going to need to know, Timothy's going to need to know that he has a hope in Christ because throughout this letter, Paul's going to address some hard things. And so here's what the hard things that he addresses. Look at verse 3. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law, it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." This is the word of the Lord. Amen? This is God speaking to us from his word. And as we listen, I think the message of these verses is pretty self-evident. I don't think it's hard to understand that when Paul comes to Timothy and he says, here's the first thing that I want you to know about how the church of God, how his household, how members of his household are to function, it's pretty obvious to me that the message of this section is this. 
We must protect the church against false teaching. The charge to Timothy here and the charge to us is that it is exceptionally important that the church protect itself against false teaching. It's right there in verses 3 and 4. He says to Timothy, I left you at the church in Ephesus so that you would charge certain people, certain individuals, to not teach any different doctrine. Now, church family, here's where I got to state three probably relatively obvious things, but things that are important and need to be stated. When you look at Paul's instructions in these 11 verses, there are three truths that jump out to us which we must hold in our minds. The first is this. False teachings are out there. False teaching exists. Now, like I said, that appears to be a very obvious statement. But in our world today, this is actually a very bold statement. When Paul tells Timothy, listen, you need to tell certain people not to teach certain doctrines, Paul is explicitly telling us that there is true doctrine, there is truth, and then there's false teaching. And the two don't go together. We live in a culture that believes in subjectivism and pluralism. When I use those phrases, what I mean is that all beliefs are equal. When I talk about pluralism, subjectivism means that people say what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. So truth is, a, is subjective. God's word says truth is not subjective. There is truth and there is error. And we have to be aware of it. As Christians... We do not come and say there's no such thing as absolute truth. We believe that there is absolute truth. We do not believe that all roads lead to Rome. We do not believe that all belief systems are true. There is truth and there is error. And in society today, to claim, as we do as Christians, that God's word is truth Man, it's not a very favorable thing to say. It seems proud. It potentially seems arrogant. But listen, we don't claim that I personally have the truth. I claim that what? This is the truth. It's not my opinion making it up. It's me reading what God's word has to say. And so Paul says, do you know that? Do you know that there is false teaching and that there is true doctrine? It's important to recognize this. It's gotten to the point within culture that a number of years ago put into the dictionary was a phrase created by Stephen Colbert, a late night host, where he talks about truthiness. That, that, that there's like degrees of truth. We can't hold to like this degrees of truth when it comes to knowing God, knowing how we relate to him, and knowing what he says about us. There's truth and there's error. Are you tracking with me? And that's important because when we recognize there's truth and error, Paul makes another point. False teachings can arise from within the church. The people who are supposed to know that there is truth and there is error within inside the church itself, 
Paul says that these teachings can actually arise. Verses 3 and 4, he says it. He says, listen, I left you in Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Those certain persons were members of the church. In fact, Paul predicted that Timothy would be faced with this. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, if you want to turn there, you can look at it. The scripture will be on the screen, but I think it's a cool section to see because Paul was traveling throughout the ancient world. He had been in Ephesus for around two to three years, and then he left Ephesus, and he kept on traveling, and eventually he was making his way back down to Jerusalem at the time, And when he did that, he stopped off in this one city and he invited the elders from Ephesus to come and to visit him. He said, I don't have time to go to Ephesus. In fact, I don't want to go go back there, but would you come to me? And so he invites them to come and the elders from Ephesus, who he knew really well, came. And listen to what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's really beautiful. I mean, that's a powerful thing. The church was created and obtained by the blood of Jesus. Now, I know that after my departure, he says, fierce wolves. Now, he's not talking about gray wolves, okay? He's talking about people here, right? I know that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is really, really incredible. Paul is saying to these leaders in Ephesus, what he comes back and he reinforces with Timothy False teaching can arise from even people inside the church. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. But you know what stands out to me so much about this? Remember, we talked last week. Paul had been the pastor of this church for almost three years. Paul was their pastor. The apostle appointed by Christ to the Gentiles. Do you think Paul was teaching false teachings? Do you think Paul was teaching error? No way he wasn't doing that. And yet, even though he was their pastor, even though he had laid a foundation for them of gospel truth, he knew that no matter how good the teaching is, no matter how good the pastor is, the leadership is, there's still this temptation for people to begin to bring from within the church false teaching. And so why do I say this? Because we can never not be on our toes. We must be alert. At the end of the day, Paul makes such a big deal about this in this section and elsewhere because false teachings are dangerous and destructive. False teachings aren't just simply errors, aren't just simply mistakes. False teaching can destroy. It's dangerous to the people of God. So much so that at the very end of chapter 1, we're going to see this next week, Paul circles back around to this very topic. And look at how chapter 1 closes. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. This is verse 18. My child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. 
That's the faith and a good conscience. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That is a big word of warning. You say, you want to know how dangerous false teaching is and holding on to it. These two guys in particular moved away from sound doctrine, from gospel truth, and they have shipwrecked their faith. It's dangerous to follow false teaching. And here's why it's so dangerous. Jesus said it so clearly in John 8. He said, the truth will set you what? Free. Oh, you know this verse. Good. The truth will set you free, which means if you don't have the truth, if you're not walking in the truth, what's the opposite of freedom? Slavery. And so he says, you are enslaved. You remained enslaved. If you don't have the truth, that's the danger. That's why it's so destructive to an individual in their life. It sets you on a course, he says, to shipwreck your life. There was a ship captain in 1879, George DeLong. And George DeLong was charged with plotting a route to the North Pole by way of the sea. Now, does anybody know the problem with that? Can you get to the North Pole by simply the way of the sea? Is there a water course that takes you all the way to the North Pole? The answer is no, okay? If you don't know geography, go back and look at it. You know, at the time, cartographers, map makers, and one in particular with great confidence had said, no, scientifically, there must be a way there. And this one guy in particular set a map man by the name of August Peterman. And he gave his map to DeLong, and he said, this map will lead you to the North Pole by waterway. Tragically, because that map was false, they were shipwrecked. They got to a place where they couldn't break through the ice. DeLong and the rest of his crew attempted to make their way back to Siberia, by way of ice, because the boat was stuck. And half of the men, it, we understand, made it to Siberia. Sadly, Dr. Or DeLong and a number of his crew starved to death. Why? They were trusting in false information, and they were shipwrecked. They were destroyed. The same thing can happen to the people of God if we're not careful and that's why Paul comes and he says this in chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, Timothy. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. If you teach what's true, if you guard against what is false, you're going to save yourself and you're going to save your hearers. And the motivation for why we should care so deeply about false teaching as a church he says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Do you want to see 
people's lives destroyed? Do you want to see people shipwrecked? We love God because he first loved us. We love one another because he has loved us. It is the most loving thing we can do to guard against false teaching so that people would not be led astray into destruction. So Valley Center Community Church, saints of the Lord, should we be concerned about false teaching? Absolutely. But it begs kind of two questions. How do we identify it? How do we know what false teaching is? And then what do we do about it? Paul gives us some of the answers to this question. He tells us that there were two primary false teachings that were happening in Ephesus at that time. And guess what? 2,000 years later, those false teachings continue to pop up with inside of the church. The first false teaching that arises in the church is this. It's saying that special knowledge about God can be found beyond what is in the Scriptures. That, my friends, was a problem back then, and it's still a problem today. People looking beyond what God has already said for truth. Now, how do we know that that was a problem back then? Well, he talks very clearly in verses 3 and 4 about some of these teachers focusing on myths and endless genealogies. How many of you today are struggling with false teachings about myths and endless genealogies? Probably most of us aren't doing it. Because that's not the ultimate issue there. What was happening in Ephesus was happening in many of the churches in the ancient world. There were these two books that we know from history that were widely circulated in the Jewish communities. And these two books focused on, guess what? Myths about the saints of the Old Testament and genealogies that all the lists of all the people who were connected in the Old Testament. One of them was called the Book of Jubilee, and then the other one was this, it was called the Antiquities of Philo. And these two books were circulated, and here's how the books were used. They had the Old Testament stories in them. Uh, the Book of Jubilee was a record from like creation to the time of King Saul. And they retold the Old Testament stories from a Pharisaical point of view. And so they added to the stories of the Old Testament, often pointing to the motivations behind why the people of God did what they did. So what was happening was people were taking these books into the church and they were saying, oh, you've read the Old Testament. You've heard the preachings of Paul. Great, but I got something more for you. Check out this it informs a greater understanding about the word of God because, look, it tells us more about the judges. It tells us more about what happened in Sinai. It tells us more about Moses. The problem with it, though, was there were significant places where those myths about the saints of the Old Testament contradicted what we already have in this word. And so they would say, yeah, I know that, but, but this, this was written afterwards, and so you need this. Church, if anyone comes to you and says, I have a revelation from God or I have a source of knowledge outside of this book that will inform your Christianity and that revelation, that knowledge, whatever they produce, 
contradicts what is in this word. It is to be rejected. This book, God's word alone, is sufficient in and of itself. And as John would say at the end of the book of Revelation, don't add to it and don't subtract from it. When you do, you drift off into false teaching. And it is a danger and it is destructive. Some of you will be saying like, well, where do we see that today? Um, there are cults that claim Christianity, but then they add to the scriptures in one of two ways. Uh, and a very obvious one is the Mormon faith that says we also have the Book of Mormon that goes with the Bible. And it's like, no, that's to be rejected. But then you have these branches of Christianity that have pastors or leaders who speak for God. And they come and they say, I have a revelation from God, and this is what it is. And, they're, and what they say adds to the Word of God. They're false prophets. They're to be rejected because what they say goes contrary to this word. Are you tracking with me? This is what was happening in Ephesus. But there's one other thing that they were doing, and that was they were adding to and misusing the law of God. They weren't just saying there was special knowledge outside of the scriptures. They looked at the law of God, and they added to it, and they misused it. One of the ways that they misused it, well, you, you see here in, in verse 8, it says, now, we know that the law is good if one uses it, what? Lawfully. So there's a right way to use the, the law of God, and there's a wrong way. You can misuse the law of God, and that's what some were doing. And in fact, in chapter 4, he says, look at what they do. Chapter 4, verse 3, it says, these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So one of the ways that they were distorting the law of God was that they were adding to it. They were saying, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't get married. And if you're a Christian, a, a Christ follower, there's certain foods that you should not eat. These were not things that Christ had said. These were not things that the apostles inspired by God had said. And so they were adding to the law of God. But beyond adding to the law of God, they were misusing the law of God. They were making statements about the law of God, saying that it applied to believers in specific ways. And you know the most tragic way that they were using the law of God? And we know this because of, he says, Look, it's supposed to be used lawfully. Look at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience. That's one of the uses of the law. They were using the law of God saying, Christian, you need this law in order to be just. Meaning, it was not just simply that the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he extends is enough for you. In order for you to be just, you must obey the law of God perfectly. Do you know what we call that? Jesus plus Christianity. It's a Christianity that says, yeah, Jesus died for you. Jesus saved you. But unless you obey the law perfectly, you're still under the condemnation and judgment of God. That is a sin to be rejected because we are saved not by works, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. I mean, 
Paul wrote another letter called the book of Ephesians. Who do you think he was writing the book to? The church in Ephesus, the church right here. And he would say to those believers when he wrote that letter, for by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that what? No one can boast. And then the verse goes on. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So it's not as though the Christian doesn't do good works, but our good works are not done in order to receive relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's only through Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah for that. Amen. So what's happening here? They were adding to and they were misusing the law of God. You see, it's so important, church, that if we are to be on guard and protect the church from false teaching, I close with these two things. Number one, we need to know and understand how the law of God functions. We need to know and understand how the law of God functions. If you and I don't know and understand how the law of God functions, we won't be able to tell if someone is adding to it or if they are misusing it. Are you, are you tracking there? And so it's important for us as the people of God to say, do we understand and know what God's law actually is and how it is to be used? Because there are three uses for God's law. And depending upon who you are, the use looks different. Let me explain. When God laid down his law, one of the purposes that the scriptures talk about for him laying down his law was so that sin would be restrained. God's law restrains sin. When he gave his law, he gave it as a way so that humanity would know this is what you are not to do. Because to do that is ultimately destructive to you. You do the same thing with your kids. Don't stick the fork in the light socket. That's a law in the Wajniki household, right? And, it's, and it's, I give that law to restrain sin, to restrain harm, to restrain pain. Now, just like with my children, now they've never done that because we had safety things. Uh, but is the law in and of itself going to keep people from disobeying it? What's the answer? No. How many of you sped on your way here? You, you saw the signs. Thank you. Amen. Hallelujah. We got, you know, like the signs are posted, right? They're, they're posted on Valley Center Road. And by the way, if you want my answer to whether or not speeding is a sin, I'll get to that. But my answer is no, it's not a sin. But I'll come to that later. <clears throat> That's a deeper discussion. Um, but those laws exist to restrain evil. In fact, Paul would say this in Romans 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law of God had not said, do not covet. So we have to understand the, how the way the law is used. It's ultimately to restrain sin. Now, it can't keep people from disobeying, but it's like there's harm out there. And so when God gave his law, that's what he did. Even when he said to Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. Because you're not supposed to be the one who assesses what is good and evil. I'm the one who does that. That's what's best for you. So the law of God restrains evil, but God's law also reveals sin and condemns the sinner. This is the other use of God's law. 
It reveals to us our inability because it shows us the holiness of God. It shows us that, yes, this is how we are to live in the world, but then as we try to live according to the law of God, no one can obey the law of God perfectly, and so it condemns us. It leaves us guilty, and that is so important because God never gave his law as a ladder to get to God. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what, must good thing, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. And he said, I've done all of those. And then he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he realized the law is an impossible ladder. I can never climb it. I can never obey God's law perfectly. If I try to do that, I will fail And so the law reveals our sinful condition, but thanks be to God that in revealing our sinful condition, it reveals to every single person who has ever felt guilt that we need someone to save us. And the beautiful truth, the true doctrine of the church and of God's word is this. God sent forth his one and only son, born of a woman, born under the law, to guess what? Redeem those who are under the law. This is why Jesus Christ came, because we're all condemned sinners. None of us obeys the law of God perfectly, but Jesus Christ was sent. He's the only one who ever obeyed the law perfectly. And he died in our place and he rose again, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself and declaring, I have overcome death for you. See, because every condemned sinner has access to a Savior and God has made that possible. Praise the Lord. But if God's law did not exist, we would stand condemned, but we wouldn't know the extent of our condemnation and we wouldn't know our need, yet God has shown that possible. In fact, I wonder here today in a a group this big, if in your heart and mind you've thought about Christianity as a Jesus plus type religion. There are a lot of people who believe that, yeah, Jesus is my savior, but I must obey. I must do these things in order for me to remain in good standing with him. In order for God to accept me, I must accept Jesus, but I also must live a perfect life. And if I don't live that perfect life, he won't accept me. I'm telling you, that's not the message of the gospel. That's a false teaching. That's using the law like the people in Ephesus were using it. Jesus plus. And Paul says, throw that out the door. The law, yes, it restrains evil. It reveals sin. That's how it's to be, to be used to draw us to Christ. But if you're a Christian now, does that mean that we just take the word of God and all of his commands and say, well, praise be to God. He saved me. Grace has covered all my sins. And so do we throw the law of God away? Do we say that it has no place in the life of the Christian? No, because Paul is writing to 1 Timothy saying, here's how you're to function as a household of God because there's a third use that God's law still has for us. And this is the beauty of it. It's not something that weighs us down and condemns us. God's now uses his law as a way to guide the saints. It's a guide for us. It shows you, it shows me how a husband who is in Jesus Christ is to love his wife. How a wife is to ultimately love her husband. How we are to be as the people of God, showing gentleness, kindness. 
It lets us know that instead of selfishness, we express generosity because we have been saved. We speak truth instead of lies. We respond in kindness instead of anger. God's law serves as a light and as a guide for us. It doesn't serve as as a means to get to God. It no longer serves to just condemn. It now shows us a light to him. The people in Ephesus needed to hear that. They needed to know that because some were coming in and saying that wasn't the case. So know the law of God and know its use. And I want to just, I didn't do this the first hour and I wish I would have. For those of us that are parents here today, and I include myself in that, if you hope to be a parent one day, even if you're a great, whoever you are, just everybody listen. Here's the deal. It's so important that we know the usage for the law of God so that in our own homes, not just as a church, but in our own homes, we don't use law in the way that God doesn't use law with us. That as a parent, our love for our children is not conditioned upon their perfect obedience to us because they're our children. It guides and it leads, and at times there's discipline because God even disciplines those he loves as his sons and his daughters. But that if we so understand how, as the people of God, the law works now for us in Jesus Christ, because we're sons and daughters of God, that when we disobey, does God the Father cease to love us? What's the answer, folks? For those who are in Jesus Christ, does he cease to love us? He doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he corrects and he brings back. Is that our children's understanding of their relationship with us? It's just one of the ways in which understanding the fullness of God's design helps us. But then last thing, I got to close with this. How, how do we combat false teaching? How do we protect ourselves? We got to know God's law. We got to know the correct use. We know that we don't add to it. And then finally this, and this is maybe the most obvious of them all, but it's so true. You must know the gospel. You must know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must have clear in your mind that we are saved not by works, but by the work of Christ alone. You must know that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And you must know that it is only through Christ dying for the unrighteous that they can be made righteous. That statement right there, it seems pretty obvious. But do you really know it? Have you really taken that in? Paul says, this is so important for us because at the end in verse 11, he says this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You and I, and not just Paul, have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. To be entrusted with that message, we must know it. We must know how to share it. We must know how to proclaim it. When we do, we will be prepared to hear when people are doing that which is contrary to the truth of what God has proclaimed. So my prayer for us at Valley Center Community Church is that we would fight for the truth of God's word, that we as a church would be able to discern when someone is teaching something contrary to it, and that we would not be afraid to speak the truth. May the Lord help us in that as the household of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your truth, and there is no other. If anyone 
proclaims or speaks, including myself, something that is contrary, Lord, to your truth. Oh, Father, would you, by your mercy, correct? Would you not allow us as a church to ever add to your law, misuse your word, or proclaim a different gospel? And Lord, if there are those here this morning who have grown up in the church or just were familiar with Christianity enough to know of Jesus Christ, but to believe that the Christian faith is about living a certain way so that God would love them, oh Lord, I pray that they would hear these words today, that it is not by works that we are saved, but the work of Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. And so that if any is here, let today be a day where they would simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner because I know in my heart that I am guilty. I know I have violated your word. I know your law to be something that condemns me, but I know your word and Jesus Christ to be that which saves me. And so, Lord, today I confess my sin and I trust in the work of Christ and I put my faith in what he has done that I would be saved. Oh, Lord, May that message go out. May you save souls even today. And would you comfort the rest of us with this gospel truth so that we would walk in your light. We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.